Hello and welcome back to Ollie and Sam's Medical Podcasts. Today's topic is pericarditis. Pericarditis is a relatively common condition which often presents acutely to the emergency department. In fact, it represents approximately 5% of non-myocardial acute chest pain seen in accident and emergency. Therefore, an understanding of the etiology and features which help to distinguish pericarditis from alternative causes of chest pain is important. This podcast will guide you through definition, etiology, features of the disease, appropriate investigations, treatment and prognosis. So let us start with the definition of pericarditis, followed by some anatomy and physiology. Pericarditis is the inflammation of the pericardium and can be acute, subacute or chronic. The inflammation of the pericardium is also often accompanied by pericardial effusions and can also be complicated by cardiac tamponade and constrictive pericarditis, which will be covered within this podcast. So let us start with the definition of pericarditis, followed by some anatomy and physiology. Pericarditis is the inflammation of the pericardium and can be acute, subacute or chronic. The inflammation of the pericardium is often accompanied by pericardial fusions and can also be complicated by cardiac tamponade and constrictive pericarditis, which will be covered within this podcast. So let's run through some basic anatomy. The pericardium is a sac which surrounds our heart and is composed of an inner and outer layer. The visceral pericardium, or inner layer, is attached to the fat of the epicardium and turns back on itself to form the outer layer, or parietal pericardium. Between these two layers exists about 15 to 35 mils of fluid, which is secreted to prevent friction within the pericardial cavity. Being a closed environment, the pericardium creates an environment with a low pressure. This aids atrial filling, but also prevents overfilling and cardiac dilatation. The tough, fibrous nature of the pericardium also provides an important physical barrier against the spread of infection or malignancy. Finally, the pericardium helps to anchor and fix the heart within the thorax. Blood supply comes courtesy of the internal mammary arteries, whilst nerve innervation is via the phrenic nerve, an important point which will become clinically relevant later. There are three broad categories of etiology, idiopathic, infectious and non-infectious. The vast majority of cases of pericarditis are idiopathic, which account for approximately 86% of cases. It is worth noting, though, that there has been a shift in etiology of pericarditis in recent years as a result of the increasing use of both radiotherapy and invasive cardiac procedures, as well as the increasing incidence of HIV. Recent years have also seen a change in the median age of onset, shifting from a median age of mid-40s to early 60s. Pericarditis is also seen more commonly in males than in females, with studies suggesting a ratio of 3 to 1. So let's tackle some of the infectious causes of pericarditis first, which can result from bacterial, viral and fungal organisms. The most common viral infections resulting in pericarditis include Coxsackie viruses A and B, echovirus and adenovirus. The HIV virus is also responsible for increasing cases of pericarditis, with 20% of HIV patients experiencing pericardial abnormalities. Pericarditis in these patients is usually the result of weakened immunity, allowing mycobacterium or malignancy to seed itself. 
Bacterial infections are responsible for 5% of cases of acute pericarditis, resulting in purulent pericarditis. Bacteria affect the pericardium either as a result of hematogenous spread or direct spread from intrathoracic infections, typically from pneumonia, empyema and endocarditis. The usual organisms responsible are staphylococci, pneumococci, streptococci and haemophilus. Bacterial pericarditis is usually fatal without adequate antibiotic therapy. Adequate antibiotic treatment reduces mortality to between 2 and 20%. Mycobacterium is also a significant cause of acute pericarditis in selected patients, occurring in 1-8% to of patients with primary tuberculosis and accounting for 4% of acute pericarditis in the UK. Pericarditis secondary to mycobacterium can be due to extension of the disease from the lung or tracobronchial tree, lymph nodes, spine, sternum or as part of miliary spread. Fungal infections can also result in pericarditis with typical organisms involved being histoplasmosis, blastomycosis, aspergillosis and candidiasis. Now we have dealt with the infectious causes of pericarditis, let us focus on some of the non-infectious causes. These include traumatic and metabolic causes, disease secondary to radiotherapy, neoplasia and a host of immunological conditions. Traumatic causes of pericarditis include both blunt and penetrating trauma, as well as trauma resulting from iatrogenic causes as a consequence of cardiac procedures or surgery. The latter of these is relatively common, with pericarditis occurring in approximately 5 to 30% of patients who undergo open heart surgery. Uremic pericarditis is a common complication of chronic renal failure and can be seen both in patients receiving dialysis and those who are not. Uremic pericarditis occurs in approximately 6 to 10% of patients who are not yet receiving dialysis. Pericarditis due to radiotherapy results either from the direct effects of radiotherapy itself or from tumour lysis and as previously mentioned is being seen in increasing numbers. Neoplasia of the pericardium is usually the consequence either of direct spread from the lung or pleura or from lymphatic or hematogenous spread, typically from primary malignancies of breast and lung. Hodgkin's lymphoma or leukaemia can also lead to pericarditis. Primary malignancy of the pericardium, on the other hand, is rare and usually due to mesothelioma or lipoma. Immunological causes of pericarditis are many and include a multitude of connective tissue disorders. Principal among these is rheumatoid arthritis, which usually results in mild disease and occasionally, although very rarely, cholesterol pericarditis. Other connective tissue causes of pericarditis include systemic lupus erythematosus, Shergan syndrome, scleroderma, ankylosing spondylitis and vagueness. Pericarditis can occur following myocardial infarction and is responsible for 10-15% to 15 of cases of acute pericarditis. Pericarditis following an MI can also occur weeks to months later as part of Dresler syndrome which results from an autoimmune inflammatory reaction to myocardial neoantigens. This tends to be seen in patients when PCI or thrombolysis has been unsuccessful in transmural infarction. So what features should alert you in a patient's history to a potential diagnosis of pericarditis? Patients usually present with acute chest pain, 
which is central, and may mimic that of acute MI, radiating up into the neck, although pain from pericarditis usually affects the trapezius ridge due to the shared innervation of the pericardium and trapezius muscle by the phrenic nerve. The most important differentiating feature is the timing of the pain, which is generally exacerbated by deep inspiration and upon lying flat. As a result, patients often feel much more comfortable sitting upright. On examination, a number of features may be present, depending on whether complications such as tamponade or pericardial constriction exist. A pericardial friction rub, which is pathognomonic of pericarditis, may be heard at the end of expiration with the patient in the upright position. Typically, this is heard as a rasping or creaking sound and unrelated to respiration. If tamponade is present, you may have a collection of features known as Beck's triad. These include the elevation of JVP, hypotension and muffled heart sounds. Another important feature suggesting tamponade is pulsus paradoxus, an exaggeration of the body's normal response which sees a drop greater than 10 millimetres of mercury in systolic blood pressure during inspiration. Constrictive pericarditis is also seen in some patients with pericarditis. This leads to the characteristic Kussmaul sign that produces a rise in JVP with inspiration with the dominant wide ascent and trough. An ECG will also help guide you towards the diagnosis of pericarditis. Typically this will show widespread ST elevation which is saddle shaped, an important feature which helps to differentiate it from elevation caused by acute myocardial infarction. Other features suggestive of pericarditis are PR depression and ST depression isolated to AVR. An ECG representing acute MI on the other hand may show more localised ST elevation as well as reciprocal changes and the presence of Q waves. An ECG may also alert you to the presence of a pericardial effusion if it shows features of electrical alternance in which there is alternate beat variation in the direction, amplitude and duration of the ECG waveform. Other routine investigations that should be done include chest x-ray which may show a globular heart shape if an infusion is present, and full blood count, usernes and cardiac enzymes. Other tests may be appropriate depending on suspected underlying etiology. Therefore, aesotitis, ANA, rheumatoid factor, MONTU test and viral serology may be requested. Finally, we come to the treatment of pericarditis, which in the large part involves the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, principally the use of ibuprofen for a two-week duration. Colchicine can be added if the patient fails to respond to non-steroidals or if the patient has contraindications to taking non-steroidals. Finally, oral steroid can be considered if the above two measures fail. Importantly, steroids are contraindicated in patients suffering from pericarditis secondary to myocardial infarction as it prevents the necessary scar formation and may put the patient at risk of rupturing cardiac muscle with far more serious repercussions. Tamponade will require immediate treatment with pericardiocentesis, whilst constrictive pericarditis may require surgical excision. Despite adequate treatment, however, acute idiopathic pericarditis may reoccur in 15-30% to 30% of patients. That concludes Ollie and Sam's medical podcast. Thank you.